Right now, humankind is on a crash course with Mother Nature, and there's no Planet B. Governments and mass media seem intent on sedating our urgency to act. The Disrupting Disaster podcast series will offer education, insight, interviews, and opportunities to act, and is proudly brought to you by Lush Digital Media. Welcome along to episode seven of Disrupting Disaster. I'm James Lush. Uh, my friend and colleague Charlie is with us as well today as we look at uh, Paris in a little bit more detail, which, of course, we talked about in our last podcast, is uh, fast approaching. November is when the whole world will be uh, eyes on Paris with regards to what uh, climate action and some of those changes, hopefully, that are implemented. But let's just talk about some of the pledges. And we touched on, again, pledges last week. And in particular, we talked about some of the pledges that uh, we were thinking about from an Australian perspective. What were they and uh, were they going to be half decent? And uh, I suppose you can tell by the tone of the voice. <laughs> and Charlie, uh, you're, you're already pulling faces. Uh, it, it wasn't quite as uh, positive as we'd hoped. I, I'm pretty sure most people expected that and we were delivered. They, they did deliver on that promise for once. Um, they were so dismal. Um, in fact, I, I think the Climate Change Authority went so far as basically saying if, if Australia and the, the level of effort that we put in was um, you know, levelled out across the world, that we'd actually be looking at something like a four-degree uh, change in climate temperature. And, and the government knows that, and uh, that's really part of what we're going to talk about today, which is um, if, if a, a government knows that their decisions is going to exacerbate the climate uh, to a point that is no longer um, you know, a feasible place for us to live. Is there culpability to a level where we can uh, sue them? So we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, give some context as to exactly where is Australia? What is our pledge about? What have we done? So we can understand perhaps um, towards the end of the podcast uh, if there is actually a legal case to be had. So. Last week, the US and Brazil pledged their commitment to generate 20% of their electricity by renewables by 2030, and that's not including hydropower. And Brazil also promised to restore 12 million hectares of forests. Now, to put that in perspective, that's roughly the size of Britain. It's amazing. Yeah, it's huge, right? We're going in the right direction. China also came out and really surprised many, many people with their bold initiatives, which was that they were going to pledge to lower the amount of carbon emitted relative to the size of its economy by 60 to 65% by 2030. And this comes after Beijing had already announced a pledge to achieve peak emissions by 2030. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a common held belief that they'll probably achieve that much earlier. And, and I suppose, as we've talked about in the previous episodes, that once... There are these sort of public statements around intention uh, that those those statistics that they they state, you know, whether it be sixty percent, fifty percent, forty percent, whatever, become reality pretty quickly because you're seeing intention and will that effectively the private sector backfill with. Um, once they see some sort of direction, you know, some sort of pointing, mm. they then say, well, we better get on board. Now, that's good. China's targets are impressive. Brazil, I, I, I wasn't even aware of that. That's encouraging as well. So what about Australia? Yeah. So um, 11th of August, Abbott announced an emissions target for Australia of 26 to 28 percent by 2030. And uh, that really does equate to 19 percent from 2000 levels by 2030. So 
this is uh, really discouraging uh, because it's well below the recommended um, reduction target that the Climate Change Authority had uh, given us. And they basically concluded last month that we really should be looking at a 40 to 60% uh, below 2000 levels, which is is where uh, China's come to. so, you know, this places Australia's 2030 emissions target among the weakest offerings by developed countries, which like, is a really... Yeah, it's, it's pretty dismal. Yeah. Um, so how does the Prime Minister sell that with regards to, you know, keeping face, uh, you know, keeping both sides of his, uh, uh, his, his audience happy? How's he done that? Well, he's done a lot of spinning. I don't know that he's made anyone happy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he said um, that we're in the middle. He, he likes to manipulate the figures but, but a little safe. bit. Safe. We're not, we're not, you know, we're not creating a, a, a massive stir, but we're safely in the middle. But we're not, are we? We're not. It's <laughs> a we load of... not. No, we're not. And, uh, you know, to read from his pref conference, um, they said that we're fairly and squarely in the middle of comparable economies. Again, these are very political. They, you know, the politicians love using this sort of... Uh, words that they can hide behind. Um, And he also said that our post-2020 target was not as large as the EU, but better than Japan, Korea, and China. Is that true? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he can hide behind these comments because they are misleading. Uh, What he's actually referring to is the uh, climate, uh, the emissions per capita. Um, But when you really start thinking about per capita, if we're gonna compare ourselves against China, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, the, the other factor we have to take into account is that there's no agreed upon point of reference in which we can compare emissions from country to country. As we mentioned uh, last week, there's uh, inequality factors. So, you know, how much the US, for example, has um, by far the, the biggest uh, accumulated uh, carbon emissions in its history. So you could do take into account that they've got they've already made a lot of wealth out of that carbon emissions. Do you take into account the GDP, the population? Uh, the, the access to technology. There is so much ambiguous uh, data out there which makes it easy for people like Abbott to hide behind certain chosen um, you know, stats to compare himself with. But um, it, it's worth clarifying that um, China re- you know, is, is pledged to reduce its carbon intensity by 60 to 65% and we've done 26 to 28%. So okay, that's so just that first half, up, right? Yeah. Yep. And that in China relates to about 6.7 million kilotons of carbon by 2030. So that's how much they've actually pledged. We're (laughs) pledging to reduce 100,000. So 6.7 million versus 109,000. That's the equivalence of what we're pledging, right? Okay, yeah. Okay. But Um, he still likes to compare us with China. Yeah, yeah, we're we're, we're doing much better. and, you know, it made me, I was doing a little bit of research as I do, and um, I do actually believe that we could, we should really be aiming for being carbon neutral. Like, I think we've proven in, uh, you know, very smaller test cases where um, people have been adding solar energy to the to the grid and they're actually carbon neutral or carbon positive. So it's it's doable if the, the right um, motivations are there. And unfortunately, in the day and age, it's, it's usually money. But let's just look, let's say that we're crazy and that's the goal. Our annual emissions in Australia are 373,000 kilotons per year. 
And that means over 15 years, we'd need to reduce our usage by about 25,000 kilotons a year, every year. So every year we reduce that. And that's actually achievable. I mean, that's Virgin and Australia coming together and saying, okay, you know what, every flight, we're going to put a carbon abatement against it put that extra two dollars on all of our flights that's what we're doing that those two boards sit down together and make that decision what that's one year target done right we come back i mean it's so doable yeah yeah i mean if every australian decided to not eat meat two days of the week that's fourteen thousand kilotons a year that we would take out i mean it's so doable it's it's you know if we decided to you know, one day a week we worked at home. Mm. Those figures are mm. about 25,000. Wow. So it's not like that. That's not doable, right? But it's a really good way of looking at it, Charlie. Otherwise, these numbers just are relevant. We don't know what they mean. But if you put them into reality like that, you know, whether it's eating meat or not eating meat, yeah. or whether it's traveling to work or not traveling to work, that's, it's achievable. But I'll compare that with China. So if they had the same target being neutral by 2050, uh, they would have to reduce their emissions by 552,000 kilotons every year. Right. So that's when you start to see that it's pretty easy for Australia to do this. That is a phenomenal task for China. Yeah. And, and therefore, is there not a requirement for countries like Australia who have it quite easy to be putting extra effort in to yeah. try and help out the likes of China? So, yeah, it's uh, it, it leaves Abbott uh, comparing us to China um, a little bit silly. So he but, he but he has said that effectively, you know, better than China, better than Japan and uh, in fact, it went on to, to call it the best in the world. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> oh no, what, 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 was, what was he taking for that statement? Well, he's talking about uh, emissions per capita. And we don't have a lot of people here in Australia. And that's why those figures are those figures. And there's a lot more people in China. You know, when we're talking about China's population, they've got 1.3 billion people. And we've got 23 million. Mm. Okay, so that... That's why per capita, when we second you chuck in per capita, it's completely different. Uh, based on the IMF figures for 2013, I try to make this a little bit easier for everyone to digest just really where we're talking about the differences between Australia and China. And so wealth-wise, the average Australian earns 62000 a year, right? We're actually the fifth in the world wealthiest, so we're pretty good. The average pay for China, do you know what it is? Uh, probably under 10. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's 7000 It's $7,500 per year. So they're averagely poor compared to us, yeah? And I kind of feel like because we are wealthy that we should be putting in even more effort. So let's put this as a race. Let's imagine all the countries lined up to do a race for carbon neutrality. Yeah. Neutrality? Neutrality. Neutrality, <laughs> thanks for that. Although <laughs> neutrality is an excellent word. Well, I think I'll make it up. <laughs> And um, so if China's much, much poorer than Australia, then let's just say that uh, Australia was able to have a, ma- a full-time coach and uh, the best preparation, mm. the best suits that, you know, yeah. running suits that money can buy in China, well, they're comparable, right? Seven grand on for a whole year. It's a pretty big disadvantage. Well, let's factor in the population. So let's say we equate the population of the country to kilograms of body weight. So that makes Australia roughly 60 kilograms. That makes China 3,349 kilos in comparison. Wow. Yeah. And so let's also compare emissions. So let's pretend the total amount of carbon emissions per year is equated to the length of the track that we have run. to run. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Australia, well, we have to run 746 metres. Okay, because we've just discovered our targets are pretty doable. Yeah, doable. Okay. Yeah. China, they have to run 16,573 metres. Right. And they're 3.3 tonnes. 
so much to work. And they've only had $7,000 that year to prep. (laughs) Right? I don't like their chances, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the US, well, they've got to run 10 kilometers. Mm -hmm. They weigh 800 kilograms, so a lot less than China, right? But still pretty obese. And they've had 54 grand to prep. India, they've only got 4,000 meters. I mean, we're 700, but they've got 4,000 meters. So they're not quite 16,000, but they yeah weigh just over 3,000 uh, kilograms. But they've only had $1,600 to spend for the full year right. in prep, right? So yeah. they've really not got a lot of money and they still got comparable issues. France, they're 164 kilograms, but they've only got 722 meters to run and they've had 44 grand to prep. And the UK, they've got 987 metres to run. They're 160 kilometres and they've had 45k to prep. So when you put all of them into comparison, Australia is going to kick ass, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to Mm -hmm. Cathy Freeman that race. Mm -hmm. And yet we're bringing out emission targets of 20%, 26%. Well, now the Prime Minister is defending this by saying he's taking uh, our economy into account. And that's why it is what it is. His mind is very much set, and we keep being uh, witness to this being reinforced. It's all about coal, mm. and there is nothing that will shift that mentality. I, I don't believe, unless he, re, you know, steps down, that that would change. I question whether that's a, a Liberal Party yeah. um, policy or it's, it's something that he personally believes. I. Arguing about the economy just blows my mind because, you know, for the basic reason is if the environment, if our climate goes to four degrees, yeah, well, we don't money really, doesn't seem doesn't that big of a deal. And, and all the figures have suggested that, you know, even I- if this does happen, the economic consequences are enormous, absolutely enormous. So we're talking about theoretically being a little bit more proactive here rather than being reactive because reactive bills are astronomical, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's it's like knowing that you're going to have a flood and saying building the wall to prep for it's just yeah. you know it's that's too expensive i'm not going to do it and then the cost when it does flood in your house is wrecked you have to get a new house and you know the hospital bills for you being taken away is just so much i mean it, it's it's illogical it's totally illogical and i don't think anyone could really seriously argue that coal's um, a much better investment uh, going forward than uh, reducing potentially you know, investing in renewables, it just but, but we've really, but as you say, we, we talk about this two degrees, this, this this ridiculous notion of two degrees, which, you know, people say, oh, we can go two degrees. And so we, we know what's going to happen when we go up two degrees. We, we have no idea about the consequences of, of two degrees, really. And yet it's like everything that is talked about here from a government perspective is, it's okay, this is going to take us to a, you know, we'll be, we'll be okay with this. But we have no idea. No. no idea whatsoever. No, and that's, again, why um, vested interests have been able to um, spin certain... Uh, that, that, that unknown factor is, well, we don't know. It actually might be okay. And so, you know, those people that are have mm. invested in, um, you know, coal and oil and all of that sort of stuff can uh, keep making their money. But but, but the, the, the general public's malaise is because, well, people talk about two degrees. Well, quite frankly, on a sort of spring day when it's 28 degrees, well, what's it going to matter if it's 30 yeah. degrees? Yeah, it's You know, it's, so what? Yeah. I think even it's it's for I mean human beings the psychology of us is not to be in 
total panic all the time. I don't think it's actually possible. Our hormones aren't wired that way. And so that, unfortunately, uh, if we're not seeing it day to day, uh, even though we're intelligent and we're aware and we're informed, we're not going to have that that ho- that stress hormone that's going to cause us to panic, panic, panic because we're not seeing it all the time. But then there are people that are. There are you know roads and tarmacs melting in india there are it is happening it's but it's unfortunately it's disproportionate and it's happening to countries that are a lot poorer than us unfortunately um but anyway to talk about the the economy let's say this argument that abbott has that he's doing the right thing for what he was elected for Anna Starbeck, the CEO at Climate Works Australia at Monash University, uh, recently published research that shows that there are in fact many pathways for Australia to substantially reduce emissions. And these really all include improved efficiency, you know, near zero emissions of electricity, switching to lower carbon energy sources for things like transport, building industry, improving agricultural uh, emissions, carbon fossil, all these sort of things. And that Australia has the serious potential to reduce emissions by at least 50% by 2030 and achieve a, a, a net zero emissions by the middle of the century. This is achievable and quite frankly, not all that big of a disaster mm, for the mm, for the economy. Mm, mm. I mean, as you said before, it's as soon as... The statement is made that the government's going to be cutting emissions. All private investors that have been spending their money on coal go, oh, geez, that's not going to be a, a decent way to put my retirement fund in. Let's put it in renewables because everyone's going to be forced to spend that. It's it's capitalism. We've yeah. got to, to be okay with manipulating it. And so using that as an excuse why we're not doing it, is, it, it mm. it's not even nonsensical. It's I believe it's probably borderline criminal okay so that, that's quite a statement but 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 i suppose there is a track record in this in terms of criminal there is um the recent case in the netherlands where legal action was taken i mean it sounds odd doesn't it It sounds crazy you're taking legal action against your government for for this sort of behavior but at the end of the day i suppose it is of massive impact on our quality of our lives um the the, the whole implications for our future well-being yeah, I actually don't think it's that crazy. I mean, if you think the Australian taxpayer is uh, like a shareholder, right? And it's just imagine that the government was the um, the board and the mm-hmm. management of a publicly listed company. Now, if that was the case, I don't think we'd be in this mess. But we have rights to expect that the money that we fund is going in the best interest of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in the Netherlands, they, they disagreed and they thought that the uh, government, for whatever reasons, uh, for usually money-making reasons, weren't doing enough. And so June this year, the uh, court in The Hague um, ordered uh, the Dutch government to cut its emissions by at least 25% within five years, which is quite significant. Uh, three judges ruled that the government plans to cut emissions by just 14 to 17, which was their initial, uh, were unlawful given the scale of the threat posed by climate change. Urgenda, which was the group that bought their suit and won, they had to deal with the fact that the previously the only legal obligations on, on states and on countries were that they basically rocked up to international treaties and that they agreed among themselves. But this ruling was the first in history where a court has determined that countries have an independent legal obligation to their citizens. And that is oh. is remarkable, but also totally makes sense to me because currently it seems when we impl- you know go to the polls, we're given very limited options of who's going to mismanage our funds mm. the least. Mm. and um, And that's really not good enough. And 
whereas the only way to enforce that, to change that, to give accountability, it seems, is not from social media, is not from going to the polls, that's not really done anything. It's literally taking legal action and mm. and thankfully um, we're fortunate enough that the judicial system and the political system are separate enough to be able to do that. So the question is, is it likely to happen here in Australia? Could there be a lawsuit against the Australian government on this matter? Well, we spoke to Ariane Wilkinson, who's a prominent environmental justice lawyer in Australia, and uh, about whether we could possibly present an identical case to um, the Australian government. And here's a little bit about what she had to say. In the wake of recent emission target announcements by uh, Tony Abbott, uh, do you think that Australian citizens might have a case to sue the Abbott government over its inadequate action on climate change? I think that's that's a really good question. I think the answer is maybe. Um, we're certainly acting for clients who are interested in those issues, and at this stage, I'm I'm bound by client confidentiality, so there's not much more I can say, other than um, certainly uh, lots of groups are really concerned about the inadequacy of the targets, and uh, you know when governments fail to act, community groups turn to the courts. But uh, in terms of whether illegal action is available, all I could really say is maybe. Well, that's that's exciting. Is there any way that our listeners could perhaps help to support the idea of um, the preparation of legal action? And is, from what you know, um, there any petitions or any groups that people can uh, join to show their support in such a such a case? Certainly. Uh, for example, we're a, a not-for-profit public interest environmental law firm um, and we have a mailing list that focuses on these climate issues. So there's a spot on our website uh, where people can log in and show that they're interested in these kind of climate cases. And if uh, a particular climate case were to go to court, that's the list that we'd email and say, hey, here's an opportunity. Um, I certainly think that uh, if a case of that sort got up, so to speak, that I think whoever was running it would certainly be turning to the community and asking to crowdfund it. Um, and certainly since the Agenda case win, we've had a lot of people chatting to us and talking to us and wanting to donate to any particular case that uh, forces better climate action. But I think until such time as um, something like that happens, people should just hold their fire or, you know, just become regular donors of general public interest environmental law organisations like ours because we're the people on the ground who are working with clients to think up um, interesting climate litigation ideas that can help get better targets and keep Australians safe. Well, it's really comforting knowing that there are people like you that um, are able to be there to play that role, which it's a sad reality that the community are feeling that that's necessary, but um, it, it is really comforting that you and your team that are there to be able to do that for us. But, you know, if we put aside the inadequate emissions, um, considering, considering Australian taxpayers are literally subsidising these coal mines and the power plants, and, you know, we're talking billions of dollars that, um, whether it's government-owned finance institutions, you know, putting money overseas or uh, we're, we're subsidising it here in Australia, and the fact that we're listed as the fourth highest recipient of public finance for coal, um, do you think that perhaps the Australian people have a case, not necessarily just that we're not doing enough, but that we're actually doing, where the government's actually exacerbating the situation. I mean, is there criminal culpability on some sort of level? 
I, I think that is really interesting kind of question to be posing. I mean, certainly in terms of criminal culpability for those for those kind of investments and subsidising of fossil fuels, that's not something that um, I've ever looked into. We don't specialise in the kind of criminal aspect of, of environmental law, um, but certainly when people are sitting and thinking, what can we do, things are getting out of hand, that's the kind of ideas that need to go into the mix with all the different lawyers who are sitting in rooms around Australia thinking about these issues. Uh, certainly with the finance aspect, I mean, Environmental Justice Australia has is currently, as we speak, recruiting for a finance lawyer and looking at the, um, firstly, the, the rules around finance and investment with fossil fuels and what the community should expect and whether that's um, lawful and, and looking at the legal issues around the divestment campaign is something that's really growing. Um, your question is a much more pointy question. Can we say that the federal governments are criminally culpable? Well, uh, my answer is I, I actually don't know. Um, and I think there's a lot of, as I said, groups of lawyers around Australia who are working with clients who are really concerned. And, and they're the kind of ideas that perhaps need to get thrown into the mix so that people can think about, well, you know, if our government's failing to act in the public interest, can public interest lawyers um, work with clients and get a better outcome? Well, that's exactly right, because it does start to step out, perhaps, um, of what your direction is in terms of just uh, the environmental specifically, because it becomes more if the public interest and what we pay for our politicians isn't being um, protected and, and served in the best capacity for the benefit of Australia, then perhaps there is some form of negligence or criminal wrongdoing and such. But that's completely, as far as I know, never, ever been something that's been breached certainly not here in Australia, but I don't know of any cases where that has actually occurred. Yeah. So it is an interesting one. I, I look forward to sort of seeing what might happen there. Um, I will go on and talk about Donald Anton, who's a professor at International Law at Griffin University, and he pointed out that an Australian plaintiff might have a standing to sue the government if they could demonstrate that the government has a duty to exercise reasonable care and that the threat of climate change was foreseeable by the government. Would you agree with his comments? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether um, we'd necessarily agree with his comments. I mean, it, I think it's fair to say that's quite an optimistic characterisation of, of tort law and government duty. Uh, certainly as, as practitioners, um, as public interest lawyers who, who have clients and go to court, uh, we're generally a little bit more uh, conservative in terms of what we talk about as as what might be possible, because certainly if we say something's possible, we'll have someone on the phone straight away saying, that's fantastic, let's do it. Um, but I think the wonderful uh, uh, kind of marriage of academics and then pra practitioners is that the academics can actually really think about what's possible and what's right there at the cutting edge of jurisprudence and then encourage uh, uh, litigators such as myself to kind of open our minds to those ideas. Um, so I think uh, Professor Jacqueline Peel put it really well when she said that with respect to a tort law case, it would require some judicial inventiveness to mould the existing tort law to fit that situation. So um, Professor Peel, who's done a lot of this kind of um, climate litigation research, 
uh, did say quite recently that her feeling was that probably what groups will do is bring cases inspired by the uh, particular case we've heard about in the Netherlands rather than modelling litigation directly on it. So she wasn't, you know, completely putting the the tort law argument to bed and, and certainly um, Professor Anton hasn't either. So uh, I think I think it's a nice balance that we have between um, academics and, and practitioners and litigators that they kind of don't let us dismiss arguments too quickly. They, they force us to keep thinking about them in case there's something interesting there. And you mentioned the case in Netherlands, which is obviously what really has inspired this, this podcast episode specifically. But as far as I um, am aware, and, and I'd love your comments on this, it's not a simple case as the Netherlands set precedent and, and were successful over there. Therefore, there is a precedent that we can use here in Australia that can set the sort of similar scenario. As far as I believe, it's a completely different system and therefore we have to sort of start almost from scratch. What are your comments on that? Yeah, you're completely correct. It is a completely different system and we do have to start from scratch. Uh, something really interesting that happened recently was Marianne Menesma, who's um, the director of the Agenda Foundation, who were the, the clients who ran the case with their lawyers, came to Australia and, and visited a, um, a bunch of different um, cities and public interest environmental law organisations like EJA. And she chatted with us about the process. So she said, look, everyone will always say it's not possible from the start, but if you use really basic tenets of, you know, tort law and you work through all your hurdles, you can actually get there and run a case that's winnable. And look, we did it. So that was a really useful exercise because certainly when we look at the Dutch system and, and what they achieved and then look at uh, what how the Australian system works, it's basically, no, you definitely can't do it. You can't have a cookie cutter of that agenda case and make it apply in Australia. It simply won't work. But I think there are some interesting transferable ideas around the strategies that they use to um, come up with the legal arguments and, and the way that they brought their uh, court case and their community campaign together to get the outcome that they did. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is it's inspired a refreshed and renewed vigour in Australia for thinking about uh, the courts as, an, as a way to... Um, force climate action when when the action and, and proposals by government are clearly inadequate. And just finally, are you um, in your sector and in, in your industry seeing that this uh, particular part of law is starting to undergo quite a significant growth and, and more interest? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's very fair to say that climate litigation uh, is is growing and, and that there's more energy and appetite for climate litigation. Uh, I mean, the different areas that we're talking about here, you know, tort law, administrative law, you've, you've raised kind of criminal culpability. But as a subject matter, uh, court litigation, which has a climate focus, is certainly growing. I recall, I think the first case was in 1994 when EDO New South Wales acting for Greenpeace brought a, a climate litigation case against a particular project. And they're the kind of court cases we've seen a lot of with some really interesting outcomes. But, you know, this kind of new wave, new end of, you know, for example, EJA went to um, court recently for uh, about shareholder activism against the Commonwealth Bank for a client called um, 
ACCR. So that was a climate litigation case on on carbon disclosure and shareholder shareholder rights. So you know, lots of different interesting uh, cases are arising because people are just getting so concerned about the urgency of climate change. Well, it all sounds that we might not be there today, and it might not be something that we can take to court court tomorrow, but certainly we're heading in the right direction. I really appreciate your time, uh, Ariane, coming in and, and talking on uh, Disrupting Disaster, and we wish you all the luck in the future. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's wonderful to be able to chat to you about this issue. All right, so there we are. It's uh, it, it's left, I suppose you'd describe that as the doors are left open. Um, she's been very careful and clever with what she's saying, but it doesn't necessarily say it's not worth pursuing. No, I think it's uh, it means that it's not as easy as copy and paste from Netherlands. Mm. Uh, we've got a lot of work to, to go on, but there's certainly interest and growing interest in this, which, you know, it sort of begs that question. Um, you know, at the moment when we elect anyone into power um, politically, that there seems to be the only accountability is that one, they get elected, and two, whether they get elected the next four years. Beyond that, if they completely wreck the environment or they completely wreck the economy, there's no real fallout. There's no real personal culpability to that. Um, you know, it's like if you're a publicly listed company, you'd be going to jail if you mismanage money like that. But yep. there is no, the, the judicial system has not yet played a role. But, you know, as, as uh, Ariane mentioned, there is the chance that that will. Um, into the future, and and I guess that's that's nice. I think there is potentially yeah. accountability. And interesting as well, it's a growing market. Absolutely, um, I think it's it's where we're taking environmental um, responsibility on on all levels, not just corporate, but uh, for political decision making very seriously, seriously enough to to go to court for it. It, it potentially puts anyone wanting to go into politics. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I spoke to a few people and they've said that it could be a, an off-putting thing. But I think if you did the right thing... You then you'll be fine. Go, that's right. You'd only go to court if there is a very good, yeah. solid case, as Arian mentioned, if there was a, it was a pretty much a very guaranteed winnable case. Mm. Um, and therefore, you, that means that you've made in your political career a really, really terrible move. And that's no different to, say, Alan Bond mm. making a very obvious bad move when it came to his business and therefore going to jail because that doesn't put my CEOs going off. They understand that that's always going to be a risk. The only thing is politics, that is not been a risk yet. Very interesting. It is. Thank you, Charlie. That's brilliant. Um, we will have a, another edition of Disrupting Disaster same time next week. Till then, bye for now. You've been listening to Disrupting Disaster, proudly brought to you by Lush Digital Media. This is your journey too. Let's continue this conversation together. Until next week.